You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Uh, it's now the end of January here, and uh, deer season is fading into the rear view. I hope you're getting a chance to get out and ice fish and uh, maybe sneak through the woods and get some small game hunting in. We've got a little bit more deer content in the next couple of weeks, but I'm also going to be sprinkling in uh, a bit of variety for you here coming up. We've got some dark house spearing episodes coming up. We've got some ice fishing episodes. We're going to be talking winter trout fishing. We're going to be talking turkey hunting, uh, a few other things as well over the next couple of weeks. So, uh, hey, if winter sports and outdoor recreation is your thing, shoot me a message on Instagram. I'd love to hear what you want to hear about and Hey, if you want to be on the podcast and talk about your favorite wintertime thing, let me know that as well. You can shoot me a message on Instagram, or you can email me, josh at thewisconsinsportsman.com. All right, here's a bit of a call to action for all of you. Uh, the last several weeks have seen a bunch of anti-hunting legislation being pushed. I'm sure if you have been paying attention to social media at all, you have seen some of that. And uh, hey, I've been sharing as much of that as I possibly can to help mobilize our ranks to speak out against the baseless garbage that's trying to, you know, impede our hunting rights. But now it's time for us to act here in Wisconsin. Many of you are familiar with the Knowles Nelson Stewardship Fund. If you're not, the Stewardship Fund gives DNR gives the DNR spending authority to purchase land and easement additions to state properties. And most of the annual stewardship spending takes the form of grants given out to local governments and nonprofits. Now. The stewardship grants fund local park infrastructure, uh, boat ramp facilities, recreational trails, land purchases for parks, and nature preserves statewide. And the Wisconsin legislature is considering a bill, AB 852, that would make it far easier to sell public lands acquired through the stewardship program, thus undermining the entire foundation of the Knowles Nelson Stewardship Fund. So head over to KnowlesNelson.org slash take action to say no to selling off 
or making it easier to sell off our public lands. Now let's band together, call these lawmakers to task, and preserve the land that we all share so that the next generation of Wisconsin sportsmen and women have access to quality public land like we have. Again, that is KnowlesNelson.org slash take action. A little bit of exciting news this week. As you already know, if you've been following along with us, you know we decided to take this podcast weekly this year. And as if that wasn't enough work for me and I needed more stuff to do, I'm actually going to be hosting another show on the uh, Sportsman's Nation podcast network called How to Hunt Deer. Now, if you haven't caught that podcast yet, get over there and give it a listen. It's uh, devoted to whitetails 365 days a year, and it's geared towards the newer hunter or the hunter who's looking to, to sort of get back to the basics. We won't get too far off on in the weeds uh, on that podcast, you know, in, in, in any particular topic, but we will be talking deer and deer hunting every single week. That podcast drops every Wednesday, and I'll actually be taking that over, I believe, um, this week. So tomorrow, the day after this episode launches, you should be able to catch me also hosting or, or at least guesting on for the first time the How to Hunt Deer podcast. Also, as uh, winter turns to spring, we're going to be talking fishing and turkey hunting quite a bit. If you're really into fishing and really into turkey hunting, I'd like to have guys on uh, for just a few minutes each week to give some up-to-date fishing and hunting reports. We're going to make uh, those part of our regular weekly intro where I catch up with a couple of you guys from around the state for five, ten minutes, something like that, just to hear about what's biting in your neck of the woods, what kind of luck you're having, what you're hearing and seeing out in the spring turkey woods. So if you're interested in that, let me know. Again, you can message me on Instagram for that or email me, josh at thewisconsinsportsman.com. And along those lines, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and the How to Hunt Deer podcast so you don't miss a single episode. Leave us a review. We'll feature it on Instagram or on an episode here. Uh, follow along with us on Instagram and check out our website where you can pick up our limb hanger tee to get you fired up for turkey season and also give back uh, a portion of every, of every shirt. 10% actually of the proceeds from every shirt goes to turkeys for tomorrow to fund turkey research. Enough commercial. Today, I'm talking with Garrett Prawl, the DIY sportsman. Garrett has a YouTube channel, a website, and a podcast right here on the Sportsman's Nation podcast network uh, called the DIY Sportsman. Garrett puts out lots of great content from hunting videos to interviews to scouting uh, videos, gear reviews, DIY gear modifications. Garrett kind of does a little bit of everything. I caught up with him this week to talk about postseason deer scouting. Now that season is over, it's a great time to get in the woods and dive deep to help you put some of the pieces together from last season, or perhaps to help you uh, scope out some new properties and figure out a plan for next season. Pretty much any time between now and spring greenup is a great time to get out into the woods to get some intel uh, on this past season. One big caveat, though, before we jump into the episode, postseason sign can be a bit misleading. As you're looking, you have to remember that you're seeing an entire deer season worth of sign. So if you go and you find a cluster of rubs and scrapes in an area, that's great and fantastic. But remember, the deer had all October and November to make that happen. So a handful of rubs and a fresh scrape on September 25th next year may be better to hunt than a whole pile of sign that you find the winter before. But Garrett helps us piece all of this together. As always, thanks for listening to this week's episode. Now let's jump into the conversation with Garrett Prawl, the DIY sportsman. All right, joining me today for this episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is Garrett Prawl, the DIY Sportsman. How's it going, Garrett? It's going pretty good. Good, man. Well, thanks for joining me. How has uh, are, are you still hunting right now or is season out for you? 
It's technically still in, but you know, some of the places I've been keeping tabs on, some of the bucks have already dropped both sides. Some of them have dropped at least one antler. And to be honest, right now I'm kind of in that mode where I'm digging myself kind of out of the the big giant workload that I've built up for myself, you know, hunting throughout the fall and and just trying to, you know, knock out a bunch of tasks around home, taking care of some projects, doing some design work and really just kind of trying to get as much done as I can before spring scouting really comes into full swing. Probably do a lot of fishing too, but there you go. Yeah. So where all did you hunt this, this, uh, this season? Nebraska, uh, briefly North Dakota, and then briefly Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa, and I guess a weekend in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay, so you got to do Iowa this year. Yeah, it was a late muzzleloader hunt. So not, mu- not the, the quote-unquote, you know, fantastic rut hunting that everybody usually thinks of when they think of a non-resident Iowa hunt. Sure, sure. How, how, how does that differ, drawing a late muzzleloader tag? How does that differ from, you know, a guy trying to draw, uh, you know, an out-of-state bow tag or archery tag? It's an easier draw because in most zones, say probably all zones, you don't need nearly as many points to get a gun tag as you do an archery tag. And that gun tag, you could choose their first shotgun, second shotgun, or late muzzleloader. Last year, I had done the first shotgun, which is a it's like a five-day season. This year, I decided to try out the late muzzleloader, which is a much longer season. But by that point in time, they've already been shotgun hunted for like three straight weeks. Sure. And it gets a gives you a little bit different of a challenge. Yeah, but you can do it back. I mean, you you did it back to back years. Yep. Yeah, there's so a lot higher, a lot yeah. higher success rate. Yeah, definitely. Some zones you can't do it every year, but some zones you can for gun. Nice, nice. Uh, all right. Well, to, before we get started, you know, I, I guess I've gone ahead and jumped in and started asking how things are going. But uh, for those who maybe aren't familiar with you, Garrett, I feel like uh, everyone is because you were one of the first. Uh, people on YouTube, I guess, that I was started even watching when it comes to, to hunting-related content. But uh, why don't you tell, tell people a little about who you are and about what DIY Sportsman is? Sure. So I started my YouTube channel, DIY Sportsman, back in, oh, I want to say it was like 2010, 2011-ish time frame that I started actually posting videos. And, you know, at the time, it was just to kind of capture some of my hunts, you know, self-filming, and discussing self-filming was a thing on a lot of the forums that I was frequenting at the time. And it was really just kind of to share with small groups. Uh, eventually I started making videos on either gear modifications or silencing tree stands, climbing sticks, that sort of thing. And those seemed to do pretty well. And that kind of led into more videos related to either modifications or how to do stuff. You know, how, to, how do you hang a tree stand efficiently in one trip? Things like that. Uh, or like building, you know, bow holders, actual, you know, long bow build I did on a YouTube video on. So it just kind of grew from there. It was, it was not necessarily like just really hyper-focused on any one given thing within hunting media. And it really just kind of grew as like, a you know, this organic thing that just, I never really like made it a goal to say, Hey, I'm going to grow this thing to you know, X number of subscribers, or I want to do this as my full-time job or whatever. I just kind of did it because I like doing it and people are seeming to get a lot of benefit out of it and enjoyed watching the content. So I just continued to, you know, put more and more out there. Yeah. I, I, I've really, really enjoyed it. I've really benefited from it. I mean, I think you were one of the, one of the first couple of guys that I think really was, I saw putting out tutorials on saddle hunting. 
Mm-hmm. And so that was pretty flu- pretty influential for me as far as first getting into saddle hunting. But also, right as I really started jumping into the public land thing uh, quite a bit, I mean, I, I grew up hunting uh, on leased land or uh, in hunting clubs down in Alabama, which down there, hunting clubs are a big thing. You know, a bunch of guys get together and lease three to 5,000 acres, and you got this big, huge place to, to hunt, but you've also got 20 or 30 other guys hunting it with you. Um, but then when I first started taking seriously uh, scouting on public land, I think your some of your stuff was some of the first stuff that I came across, and you were covering things like digital scouting and postseason scouting and that kind of thing. So uh, that's what I wanted to have you on for today was to talk specifically about postseason scouting. Uh, but before we jump into that, I do want to ask, how did your how did your season end up this year? So we talked just a second ago. You're uh, pretty much wrapped up for the year. How did how did the season go for you? It went, I'd say, pretty well. Um, not quite as well as maybe it could have gone in certain regards. But I mean, both my wife and I tagged out on deer. My wife had just gotten into hunting, and this is her basically her third year. And so she shot her second deer, and I was you know fortunate enough to be kind of right there with her. So that was great. And we both filled the freezer with does and I kind of made it my goal, at least hunting in Wisconsin, um, to where I was going to kind of make the call and say, I'll go I'll hold out for a specific buck on public that I was hoping to get after. And I ended up having that buck, two different encounters, one encounter, four yards on the ground, never was able to get a shot opportunity I felt comfortable with. Um, and then, you know, pulled around a little bit between the different out of state hunts to where I, you know, couldn't spend as much time as I wanted to for that specific deer. By the time I came back, then it was trying to figure out how to get back on them with the, the various rifle seasons, the muzzleloader season, and then the late antlerless season. And never quite in the late season was able to, to connect with him again. So I think he's still alive. I got a trail camera photo of him the day after firearms ended. So I'll be back out there looking for a sheds and and trying to figure out the piece of the puzzle to, to make it, you know, the same kind of opportunity next year and hopefully seal the deal. Man, I, you know, I want to hear a little bit about that. This, that, this isn't what I wanted to talk to you about today, but I got, I got to dive into this a little bit. You hear a lot about guys who are targeting one specific animal on like their private land or at least lease property or whatever, but you don't hear a lot of guys talk about targeting specific bucks on public land. So what, what made you want to do that this year? I wanted to try it because I knew what was out there. I've gotten better over the years at historical trail camera information and being able to use that to, to my advantage um, or even being able to use scrapes, especially during the month of October to figure out what deer are starting to use an area. I mean, early season, unless, especially in like bigger woods or you know timbered areas, unless you're right on top of those deer and in their core areas, you're not really laying eyes on them unless you have trail camera photos. Uh, but once you get, I guess, closer to that pre-rut time frame, you're able to find these community scrapes to, to be able to kind of monitor. And then you're really getting a lot more deer that are showing up and it, it gives you like, you know, the guys throw on the term inventory. It lets you just kind yeah. of know what's out there. When you see a deer that that's like, wow, um, you know, I could just hold out for this, particular deer, or I could be happy, you know, shooting whatever other deer comes by. Um, and it was one of those scenarios where it was like, man, I got a little bit of history with this deer. I had pictures of him last year. Uh, you know, I, I shot the other ones. I never really put too much time into him, but I mean, he's like an old, like bigger, way bigger body than the, the deer behind me. Um, and I think he's just, he's probably 
I would guess well over five years old, which is a rare occurrence on public. So I just kind of made the decision like, I, you know, I want to, I want to make an attempt at this. I want to, you know, try and pass potentially other deer that I might have opportunities at in the case that I can play cat and mouse and, and maybe get a shot at this one. Yeah. So two things that you kind of have touched on there that you've mentioned, one is that deer behind you. I do want to come back to that, but first I want to ask what, what did you learn this year chasing one specific deer? And, and the reason, the reason I want to ask that is because, um, two seasons ago, two years ago, uh, I had three encounters with the same eight point kind of in this 20 acre section of woods here in Southern Wisconsin, where I was hunting. Um, I was hunting that same area this year and, uh, actually wounded a buck that I think is that buck I encountered, had three encounters with last year. I've got pictures of him now with a scar. He's doing fine. Uh, and he, he made it through the season. I, I really am thinking about trying to target this deer because I know from about October 15th until about November 15th, I think I have a pretty good idea of where he's going to be. So I want to know, what did you learn chasing one specific buck on on public land, like what's something I can take and sort of stick in my back pocket for potentially October and November of 2022? I think for me, it's, you know, the more historical information you can find, the better. So like if you have trail camera photos of that deer when he's smaller, you know, younger, even if it's, you know, not something that you're interested in, you know, hunting him that particular year, if you know you have pictures of that deer, make sure you are paying attention to where you're showing up in certain areas, what time of year, even down to the specific week and the specific days. Uh, this particular deer I was after this year, he he definitely showed up in a lot of the same areas as he did on cameras last year. And I was able to use that in intel and scout some different adjacent areas. And even when I was in season scouting, doing a, a little loop, in late September, I believe I found a spot that just, it didn't have the sign right then and there, but it just seemed right. You know, that, that gut feeling and, and you look at everything around you in the context of how the land was laying out and like, I think this is going to be a good spot. And that was, that ended up actually being the spot where I had that deer walk by at four yards and just never had the shot opportunity. And so it's like that. If I didn't have that information from last year, I would have been kind of behind the ball trying to figure this one out. It's almost like I want to be there before he shows up, especially if you're, if you're focusing on that, like that late October timeframe, which I think yep. is, is one of the easier timeframes. If you're going to try and do that easier, I think than early season, easier than late season, way easier than rifle season, uh, unless you got like a really good pattern where he goes when he's pressured. But it seems like in terms of daylight opportunities, that's definitely the, one of the better timeframes. And if you know where he's going to show up during that time frame then you can almost be like there. You have your setups like picked out, ready to go. You know what winds you're going to go in there on, and you can be very precise instead of just kind of, you know, throwing random hunts at places and, and hoping to get lucky. Yeah, I, you know, this this buck that uh, that I'm talking about, I actually, I wounded him this year before I knew it was the same buck. And it wasn't until I started uh, going back through some trail camera data and I realized that first of all, I, I put the two pictures side by side in the exact same frame, just bigger and more massive and a bit wider uh, of a buck this year. Um, but I had them on the same camera in the same location, three days apart, two two years apart, you know, two, well, a year, a year and three days or whatever. 
So real, real close together. And then, uh, yeah, so I think I've got some good historical data sort of adding up on him. And that that has kind of been my thinking is, you know, this spot, I didn't go in there this year until the scrapes really opened up. And the scrapes in this area actually opened up pretty late. It wasn't until, I mean, probably October 28th, 29th, when the scrapes on this little lane that I was hunting really opened up. And yep. um, yeah, so, but I guess this year uh, I'll be in there on the 27th. <laughs> or a 28th or something like that, trying to get in oh, there yeah. and get on him. For, for sure, for sure. Because, I mean, obviously, I think he was there earlier. Yeah, and, and what I what I found, too, is that, like, this year in particular, he, he showed up, I think, the first time October 16th this year. Like, last year, okay. I didn't get any pictures of him until, like, October 30th, 31st. But, like I said before, like, it was just, like, kind of the adjacent edge of his, kind of that core area that he was using during that pre-rot. Yep. And so, I... I between the cameras I had out there, there's just like a ton of pictures overall, but somewhat unpredictable. Like you have the same wind direction. He might, he might go through one travel corridor and hit a, a scrape line on one given day. And then three days later with the exact same weather conditions, he's working a different scrape line quarter mile away. And this is not like really, I guess, defined cover and, and like crop fields and anything like that. It's, it's more timbered and there's a lot more cover in this particular like public land piece. And so I think they use, at least in this scenario, they use that land a little bit more loosely than you might see in in something like either farm country where, especially if the crops are out and they have limited cover or like a cattail marsh where you got those little, you know, visual cues on like where the timber is. Like there's different habitat types. that seems like define the movement a little bit better. This wasn't one of them. So that was like, when you asked me what I've learned, like that was another thing is I don't necessarily look at, at, at trying to, to do these types of hunts as like, you know, there's a specific bed that he's always going to be using. And there's a specific tree that's right for the right set of conditions. And and that's where I'm going to kill him. And I figure that out in like March, I used to, to try and do that a little bit more, but it seemed like, especially in this type of habitat, it was almost like you got to figure out the core area. And once you have the core area, you just keep throwing sits at that core area, whatever makes sense. And you're going to get your opportunities. It's just like letting the stars line up as they may. Cause he's, he's got multiple different beds he's using within that core area. You know, it might be in, in this particular case of this deer, he was daylighting on, I want to say a solid, like hundred acres, um, which, wow. which seems like a lot of land when you think about it in the context of like, you know, a farm, type habitat where you got like a, you know, your grandpa's 80 or whatever. Um, but there's just a lot of, there's a lot of different pockets of doe bedding and he was traveling around and checking scrapes adjacent to the doe bedding areas during that time of year. And outside of that late October timeframe, you know, you got the rut and and yeah, he'd be all over the place during the rut. Um, but like late season, early season, it's like, he just disappears on those cameras. It's like, he's got his core areas that he uses early and late, but then you get into that pre-rut and rut time frame and that totally shifts to where he's, he's using different areas where the, the does are and, and where he's historically has gone and made his little circuits. And that was what I was trying to, to key in on mostly because I knew that would be the most like appropriate time to try and get an opportunity in daylight. Yeah. So you don't have any information on him early and late season, really? Not a ton. Not, not this one anyway. Uh, other deer, I have a little bit more, but this one, it seems like he shows up and I have thoughts and ideas on where he probably is early and late, but have not yet confirmed something I'm hoping to figure out here in January, February, whenever I start getting out and doing some, some shed hunting. And, and, uh, 
I guess, early, early spring scouting. Yeah. So I've, um, I've got a spot, this spot I'm talking about with this, with this particular buck. Um, I found a location where, again, I, I run cameras there pretty much year round. I get nothing in there uh, early season except for does. I get nothing in there late season except for does. But during the rut, tons of bucks, including this particular buck, uh, for the last two years. And I found a spot where uh, I think what makes this place special, and I'm curious to run it by somebody because you're, you're the first person that I've kind of run this by. I think this is an area where um, – a couple of different doe family groups are kind of close to each other. I think they kind of move off in separate directions for the most part, mm-hmm. but it's got three distinct doe bedding areas that are only separated by maybe, I don't know, 80 to a hundred yards, but they're thick pockets of bedding cover that are separated by pretty open cover outside of that. And during the rut, it's just a madhouse bucks running from one kind of to the other. And I think that's what's making this spot so special. And I think that's what's keeping him there, you know, in that October, November timeframe. Do you think that's, that you, do you think I could be onto something there? Yeah. I mean, definitely you pretty much laid out the the puzzle pieces there. You, you He's got motive for being there. He, he's able to then monitor all those, those three different dough groups. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's got more that he checks, you know, at night or whatever um, that are with, outside of the, that's like whatever pocket that is. And so if you've got the evidence to say he's, he's in there and we have a reason as to why he'd be doing that, it makes sense. He's probably going to keep doing the same thing the next year during that time. Yeah. Frame. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think next year I'm basically going to throw every camera I own into this little pocket and we'll see, <laughs> we'll see if I can't get it done in there. But uh, before we do jump into some late season stuff, I want to ask real quick about that deer behind you. You killed an absolute stud last fall. Well, not this past fall, the fall before in Wisconsin. Tell me a bit about that deer and sort of how that, how all that played out. So this one was a deer that like, again, I had pictures of him from earlier in the year. Like I put a couple of cameras out and checked them. And it was like a, I think mid October was when I got a, like a nighttime picture of this deer. And I was like, Whoa, like that's not your <laughs> average, you know, deer out on public land in Wisconsin. Yeah. And is, is this kind of like big timber country too, or is this farmland? Yeah, there's a lot of log I and mean, there's, there's some agriculture around, but it's not right there. And there's a lot of timber. It's like the kind of habitat you think about when you're talking, when you think about going grouse hunting. Okay. Um, gotcha. so it's like that kind of tier of, I guess, latitude in Wisconsin. And so I didn't at the time think I, you know, I was hoping I'd have an opportunity that deer, but ultimately like I wasn't, I didn't have enough Intel to where I felt comfortable enough to where I was going to say it's him or bust. Like I would have been happy with a lot of different deer. And it just so happened that during the rut on that year, I think it was November 8th, if I remember right. So like, right, you know, kind of prime rut travel, my wife and I were hunting together and she had an opportunity in the morning, never quite got a clean shot opportunity at a, a good eight pointer. And we decided to get down because it was hot and windy that day. It was close to 70 degrees. And we said, hey, there's, you know, an area that's, you know, something we haven't really scouted yet. We've, we've scouted a whole bunch of this this area. And we know there's a lot of really good rot sign, a lot of fresh rubs, like over the past couple of weeks, big tracks. And we'd been hunting there in October. So we knew, you know, like a lot about the rot sign in that area. But we didn't know exactly where like that deer was 
for instance, like where he was spending the most of his daylight time. And we're like, hey, let's just go scout, you know, basically take whatever shape, you know, you look at the at our maps, whatever shape that we had scouted, let's just add on a little bit to that. Like imagine what we scouted is like an oval on the map. Let's extend the one side of that oval. We got the right wind for it. It's really thick cover on that side. So we got up there and with the wind in our face, just kind of started zigzagging through that cover along the transition lines, you know, along the edges of ponds or beaver swamps transition line from, you know, Aspen regrowth from logging to, to hardwoods. And we're finding a lot of sign along the way. And eventually by like, you know, 2 PM had gotten to this thicker Ridge where we physically saw a buck moving up to the other side of this Ridge, probably 40 yards away, but ultra thick and never got it. Do you think you bumped him or do you think? No, it was? I don't think it was that deer. I think it was a smaller deer, but okay. still, still a good buck. And, <coughs> and we tried to get closer and I, I tried, you know, blowing a couple grunts in the grunt tube and we were, you know, kicking leaves around trying to sound like we were another buck back in there. Cause he couldn't see us. We just saw glimpses of him through the timber and we, you know, kind of worked our way closer to where we kind of popped out of a little opening to where we would have been able to see him while he was gone. So we said, okay, let's just kind of walk that direction. He was headed and we get up that ridge a little bit further. There's a big, huge primary scrape area. And again, it's November 8th. So the scrape activity is not what it would have been back in like, you know, a week, week and a half earlier, but it laid out good. It was hot, you know, windy afternoon. And we're like, Hey, let's just, let's just sit here for a bit. We'll sit here for an hour and just kind of kill time. For all we know, a doe had just come through here in heat, and that's what that buck was, you know, cruising, following that that scent. So maybe another one's going to do the exact same thing. So we found a, a log, a deadfall to sit on, and that log had a root ball that was on the end of it, and we just kind of used that as front cover to where we could look down the ridge and see the direction where that last buck had come from and also be able to see that scrape out in front of us. We both had our bows with us. And we, you know, had the camera amongst us that we could, you know, swap back and forth depending on, you know, who wanted to get a shot and kind of talked about, you know, a couple of different scenarios. Oh, if this happens, you know, I'll grab the camera. If this happens, you grab the camera. And we hadn't been there for 10 minutes. And I know that because I did a little, you know, Marco Polo video chat with some of my friends. Just like, hey, we're, you know, give them a quick daily update. And, uh, when we looked at the time that that was sent versus like the time when we turned the camcorder around, it was less than 10 minutes from where we sat down. This buck just kind of appears slowly walking up the Ridge. My wife just instinctually grabs the camera. I picked up my bow, came back to full draw and that deer worked his way a little bit closer to that scrape. Eventually started getting our wind a little bit because it was sort of sucking down the backside of that Ridge. But every now and then we kind of drift over and get on the front side where he was at. And you could tell that he was feeling uncomfortable and he was about to move and, you know, go back the way he came from. So I took the the shot opportunity that I had and, you know, center punched the heart just about, and he went 50 yards and tipped over. Man. And this thing is a giant. Like, yeah. He's massive. It, pretty big body size too. Um, it was, it was definitely an experience trying to get him out of the woods. I mean, you saw the video obviously, but yeah, um, the amount of deadfall that we had to get that deer through was, I mean, we were, it was well after midnight by the time we got that deer back to the, oh, the vehicle. Goodness. Man. So to, uh, for, for those who are just listening, they can't see the deer like I can. He's a mainframe 10 point 
super clean. Uh, how wide? Uh, only like 16. Only like 16, but really, really impressive buck. People should go to your YouTube channel and uh, check it out if they haven't seen it already. You, you told me the deer scores around 150, but man, looking at looking at that thing, I would have guessed way, way more. But hey, what do I know? Uh, so anyway, well, let's, let's jump into some postseason scouting stuff. Uh, that's why I wanted to have you on in the first place. Like I said, when I first started, uh, looking for postseason stuff on YouTube years and years ago, uh, you were the, one of the people that popped up. And so I thought, well, who better to come on the podcast that I'm doing now and talk about postseason scouting than, uh, than Garrett. So, uh, I'm curious, um, you know, everybody changes and evolves as a hunter over the years, right? And I think a lot of people are doing that now, possibly even at a faster rate than maybe what used to happen because of the uh, the amount of information that's out there and the amount of stuff that people can just take in. So uh, how big of a role does postseason scouting play for, for you these days? I'd say it's a pretty big role. It, it's not a necessity as much as it used to be. Ten years ago, I would... I would put a huge amount of stock in my postseason scouting, not as much as my in-season scouting, almost to the point where I would plan my hunts based off of a wind direction and my postseason scouting. And now, over time, I've kind of shifted. I've kind of shifted more towards the postseason scouting being a base. Like it's just something that, if I've got the time and it's a place that is close enough to home, and I'm going to spend a lot of time there, I'm going to pound that ground in early spring i'm going to learn as much of it as i can and that's my baseline and then in season i'm going to do as much scouting as i can too to try and get the real-time info on the sign and then relate that back to what i've learned actually doing the the postseason scouting so that the two can kind of feed off of one another and i I feel like i have more of the full picture versus if i like if i'm on an out-of-state trip i don't have the postseason scouting usually and then you you're just trying to make the best decision you can with the information you see on the ground. And sometimes you, you blow an opportunity. It's like, Oh man, if I would have known that ahead of time, like I would have set up a little bit differently and postseason kind of gives you a little bit more of that, that influence where you can know exactly how you're going to want to do your setup. If a certain place becomes good. Sure. So what makes a property one that you're definitely wanting to postseason scout? Like, is this, I guess what I'm really asking, is this something that's reserved uh, just for properties that you don't know super well? Or are you going back to properties that you've been hunting for two, three years at this point and still doing some postseason scouting uh, in maybe even in the areas that you've been hunting for a while? Yeah, I definitely want to do it as much as I can. Like the, the place that we talked about earlier, I'm going to be back there doing some postseason scouting this year for sure. Cause even though I've now scouted this thing for several years, every winter and every spring, there's still things that I learn or see during this season that I want to pick apart a little bit more. You know, like we mentioned, I found that spot scouting on foot in like September that ended up being a really good spot. Well, I didn't really have a great setup in there. Like that's one of the reasons I was hunting on the ground. And when I go back in there in the spring, I'm going to pick that area apart, maybe find out, a better exact, you know, tree location to, to be able to go and set a saddle up or be able to manipulate the wind a little bit better um, or be able to connect the dots on some scrapes where maybe I had 80% of the picture during the season, but then I go back in there and the snow is just melted and you got that rut sign still on the ground. 
and you can kind of fill in the gaps. It's like, oh, I didn't have a chance to figure to walk this in November. I'm going to walk it now. And then again, that kind of adds to your historical knowledge base that you can then glean off of for the following year. And I think it's really important if you're like an early season guy. Um, like if you're like, like Dan Infall is a great example, right? Like he, his setups are so precise that it's very hard to, to do that with enough accuracy um, to where you can know exactly how you need to be set up, how high you can get off the ground and, and be able to, to really set up without busting the deer you're going after unless you've done that postseason and you've looked at that thing from every angle, you know exactly what the wind and thermals are going to do on that day and you just kind of pick it apart. So I, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think rut hunting matters less for the postseason scouting. And that's why a lot of times when we're doing our out of state trips, you know, they're usually playing around the rut. Um, it's easier to find pinch points and be able to see where, where does might be betting on a map and find those types of locations than to, to be able to figure out those really specific ones on the fly. Sure. Sure. So big picture then you, you mentioned just a moment ago that um, postseason scouting at this point kind of gives you a base to go off of. Mm-hmm. So, so like big picture, let's say you're, you're going back to this property um, maybe it's one that you're not as familiar with as this one, but maybe moderately familiar. Like you kind of understand generally how the land lays out. What are some of the big picture things that you're trying to take away? Like what are your goals when you set out to postseason scout? Cause you're obviously not saying like this, this is my stand site. I'm coming back here on October 1st and I'm going to sit here with this kind of wind all the time. So w- what are the big things that you're hoping to take away? I'm looking a lot for, what I find in terms of number one, just kind of like habitat diversity and cover and hunter sign, like just kind of those intangibles that regardless of what the deer sign looks like, does this place have a lot of hunting pressure? Does it have a little bit of hunting pressure? Does it have places where deer can go to get away from firearms hunters during that nine day season? And, or, or does it just kind of like wide open and, and it's really easy for people to drive that out? And especially in Wisconsin, you know, a lot of those places that either have those swamps or they have cattail marshes, like in the South, you know, by where you are, where it's a little bit harder for, for guys to, to really drive those out compared to woodlots. And so I look at, you know, the cover side of things, but also the more diversity, I feel like the better from just like general deer supporting habitat, like, okay, cool. This has a swamp that that's good cover. But does it also have good food throughout the spring, the summer, the fall? Does it have oak flats, oak ridges? Is there fresh, clear-cut, early successional growth, forbs that are going to be able to grow up and sustain growing fawns and, and nursing does and antler growth? Um, you know, Is it going to be able to have something that those deer can utilize throughout the entire course of the year? Or is it the type of place where they're only going to be able to you know, be interested in staying there for a certain time frame, then they're going to go move off somewhere else. And that's kind of like, you know, regardless of what the actual deer sign looks like, those are kind of like the qualifiers. Like, does, is this place worth putting a lot of time investment into? Is this place, you know, worth, um, worth doing actually a lot of hunting in it and trying to, to pick it apart to a high level of detail. Gotcha. So you're almost, you're almost grading an area. Yeah. Yeah. If it's a place I'm not super familiar, not like the place we talked about earlier, I know that place has those intangibles. So I know that there's always going to be a good opportunity for there to be lots of deer. Number one, 
Um, so good freezer filler opportunities and also opportunities for big bucks. Cause it's just, there's just, you know, little places those deer can go and they can get away from the firearms pressure. And I don't even know where they go in certain scenarios, but they, they're able to find some place where they have security and then they, you know, are still around the next year. So it's like, there's that, but if it's like a newer piece, I don't necessarily know that I can figure some of that out by looking at aerial photos, especially if it's good aerial photos or recent aerial photos, but I still like to be able to go walk on foot. Uh, Cause a hunter pressure piece too. I mean, that's something that changes year by year. Sometimes you get a place that has a lot of hunting pressure one year and not as much the next year. Uh, maybe there's a place that's dead and all of a sudden word gets out about a, a giant buck that's in the area. And then they get 10 vehicles at, at every parking lot. Um, so it just depends. And that's, it's kind of why like, I would like to, you know, if, if at all possible, scout a place year after year to just learn some of those additional things. But especially if it's a bigger property, it's just too much landmass to really know and learn like the back of your hand. Like imagine trying to grid search, imagine trying to grid like 15,000 acres. It'd take forever. So you pick little pieces. Okay. I'm going to walk this 200 acre area today and maybe you burn right through and you're like, oh, there's nothing good in here. I'm going to, you know, walk this other 200 the next day. Maybe that 200 acre piece you walked scouting was really good. And so you, you end up only being able to walk like a hundred of it and you're, you're marking potential tree locations. You're marking good route sign. You're, you're finding beds. And so then you, you end up focusing a lot more time in that area. Well, you know, fast forward to five, 10 years down the road of doing that every single year. And now you've got a much better picture of that big area and you're able to draw from a lot of those different, um, you know, kind of basics of how the land lays out. Yeah. I feel like a lot of guys, uh, I know myself included start off looking at that big, I guess, 15,000 acre piece or, or whatever it is, whatever the size of the piece, when you get to some of these larger public areas and it just gets to be overwhelming, right? You start thinking about, uh, you know, oh man, now I'm going to go postseason and scout this thing. And you feel like you've got to cover the whole thing, you know, in, in what limited, what limited time you have. And I found for me, I often end up being less productive by covering more ground. Uh, sometimes if I just pick an area, 50 acres, a hundred acres, 200 acres, and say, this is going to be my area for, for this amount of time. And just like you said, devote the time there. Uh, I would end up having a lot better success and find better locations to hunt. So tell me a bit about, you mentioned aerial photos. How do I go about narrowing down this 15,000 or even 1500 acres to something that's a bit more manageable that I can get, then go in and grade it and say, okay, there's not a lot of hunting pressure in here or there is or, or whatever. And so it's worth a a second, third, and maybe fourth look. So you can look at like the very highest level, even on the state website, how many parking lots does this place have? What's the closest big city? Are there two big cities close by? Is it a city of 75,000 people within, you know, half an hour, Like that just generally is going to have way more pressure than some place where the nearest city's 30,000 people and it's, you know, 45 minutes out. So those are kind of qualifiers you can just think at a really high level from a hunting pressure perspective. But then as we kind of zoom in closer to the, the particular parcel, again, I'm looking for on the maps, does it look like this place has a lot of security cover? Does it look like this place has a lot of diversity and a lot of edge? If the answer to those questions is yes, then that can support more just deer in general, it's going to be harder for that place to get hunted out for the deer that are there. And it's probably a place that's worth putting in at least a, a couple really good, solid, hard 
long day scouting before you can make the determination of if it's worth putting in even more time or if it's like, ah, this just wasn't what I was hoping it would be. And you, you end up, you know, picking a different place to look at. Uh, but typically like tools that I'll use at that point, you know, like I started using Spartan Forge quite a bit now because in many of the areas that I'm hunting in Wisconsin, you have leaf off imagery. And so that with the leaf off imagery, especially when you have like timbered swamps, like if you're looking at summertime aerials and you look at like tamarack next to hardwoods, it's like, you can tell the difference in like where the, the transition line is there. But then you look at it at wintertime and it's like, oh, well there's tamarack, but there's like some other, it must be like a little pocket of spruce in here because it's still green. And then you look at the hardwoods and it's like, okay, well here's what looks like maybe 10 year old regrowth after logging right next to like a little oak flat here. These tree canopies look like they're probably, you know, larger oaks, maybe even white oaks. I'll, I'll go check that and see if there's actually white oaks there for early season. And so you're able to glean a lot more information there uh, on some of those aerial photos. And that helps you kind of choose the best spots that you want to spend those first couple of days scouting on to kind of qualify the piece. Yeah, I haven't used Spartan Forge yet, but I've heard a lot about it with the <clears throat> with the leaf off imagery being a, a big, big thing for that. Uh, one of the places where I, I spend quite a bit of time has got a nice, um, uh, I don't want to give too much away. Some people know kind of close to where I'm at. Uh, there is water and bottom around in the area. And the imagery that you can get with leaf on imagery, you know, summertime imagery, you can't really make make much of it. Um, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a marshy area, but with lots of, lots of larger trees. And yep. so, uh, yeah, it would be really nice to be able to have something a little bit, um, w- with a little bit more clarity. So, all right. So I, I'm going into this area and, uh, I'll tell you a mistake that I made my first year here in Wisconsin, and then maybe I'll ask the question. So the first year that I was here, I went and, uh, it was March, April, I think it might've been the, like the first weekend of April. The snow had just melted, right? And I get to this place, and I find probably, I don't know, 50 beds in one concentrated area. I find cow pads cut into the mud. I find deer droppings everywhere. There's hair everywhere. I'm like, man, the deer have been just living in here all winter long. So I mark it. I go back in October. I slip in super quiet, expecting the deer to come out of the uh, ag fields that are roughly... I don't know, half mile away, something like that, get into this bedding area. And I sit there all morning and not a single deer comes in. I get down, I look around. None of these beds have been used. There's zero deer sign in here. I'd gone in in the dark. And uh, so the mistake that I made was assuming that this magnificent bedding area that I found in April from the winter was going to be being used in the early season uh, the, the following year. So what kind of sign are you looking for specifically? And then maybe we can go into a bit of how you start to translate some of that sign. Because I've learned now that deer bed differently during the winter. They'll group up in pretty large groups and they'll all be bedding nearby to each other. And they're probably not necessarily going to be using that bedding area the following year. So what are you looking for when you go in? And then how do you sort of rate that compared to other kinds of sign? I'll break it up into, we'll say rut sign versus non-rut sign. Okay. Rut, rut sign, I feel like, is easier for the general guy to, to look at. Rubs, scrapes, and I guess in some regards, if, if you know the ground still holds them, tracks. Um, those things will give you multiple clues to, 
where number one, you're learning that bucks were using that during the rut and that's useful information. But then if you use that contextually and you're looking at, okay, around the sign, is there good security cover? Is there doe bedding? Am I finding actual, you know, doe beds? Um, are there pinch points near here? Like those are then the, the qualifying pieces of information to figure out like, is this nighttime rut sign or is this daytime rut sign? And if it's peak rut, it probably could be used at any time of the day. And so I feel like if you're, if you're just going into a piece and, and you're, you know, like we talked about earlier, like your main thing is you're maybe bow hunting the rut and you don't have as much time to invest into figuring out early season through late season, all the different little subcategories of what the deer could be doing. Well, finding that rut sign is the easiest stuff to, to figure out when you're in the woods. And then it just comes down to, you know, how do you capitalize on there? So if, you, if you're finding the, the rubs and the scrapes, then it's like all about context. You know, whenever I'm looking for a scrape, I'm looking for the licking branches over the scrape. If there's no licking branch over the scape, scrape, I almost ignore it because it's not a type of scrape I'd want to hunt over. The types of scrapes that I'd want to hunt over almost always are on the edge of extremely thick cover on the edge of doe bedding areas, preferably in some kind of travel corridor where there's, you know, maybe like a, a creek or a pond or, or something that's really defining that deer movement even more. They have big licking branches over it that you can tell physically, you know, you maybe have a branch that's, that's broken off and just kind of dangling there. The, the tips of the branches all have sign that they're, you know, getting use from deer rubbing the, their glands on the, the licking branch itself. When I find that type of a scrape, I'm much, much more interested. And if you find several scrapes of that variety in a certain area and there's a lot of cover and a lot of doe bedding, it's like, okay, man, I, now I've, now I found an area that I'm really excited about from like a late October hunting perspective. Now can I figure out a way to get in here cleanly with the most likely wind direction? Maybe it's the Northwest or a West, um, you know, mixed in with maybe some Southeast if you get a warm front that comes through. So I'll try and look at it from those aspects. Okay. Given those most likely wind scenarios, which again, you can figure that out by looking at a wind rose month by month. Um, which is like something Spartan Forge has too, then you can, you can figure out kind of during that time frame, given the weather, here's likely how it's set up. And those types of things can be very accurate and they're, they rely less on the in-season sign because like we were talking about earlier, those type of areas generally have the year over year repeatability or if it was really hot one year, unless something changed, you know, logging came through or, or, you know, three new hunters start hunting the area, it's likely going to still be pretty good and, you know, close to the same the following year. So those, those are the type of things I'm looking for when I'm looking in the context of rut. If it's a hillier area, I will also throw in the additional, I guess, not necessarily deer sign based, but terrain based. Where is the place I can set up that's the most likely to give me a shot opportunity, your basic pinch points. And maybe it's a creek drainage that has a really steep ditch, and you can tell where those deer are crossing the ditch and going from, you know, one big point on one side of that drainage and then going up the other side. Maybe it's, you know, closer to the hilltop where you got a bluff, but there's a gap in the bluff and the deer kind of hooking around that particular area. And you know, because how steep it is, they're only going to, you know, cross it a certain way. Um, those are things that are really easy to find in postseason scouting or any time of the year, really, that you can look at in context of the deer sign and figure out, okay, this is, like, is going to be a good route spot. Um, 
I, I feel like if, if guys are maybe newer to some of this off season scouting, that's a lens that they can look at this whole thing with that makes it a little bit more approachable and easier to, to learn and figure out. There's a lot less subtleties involved and they can likely see pretty immediate benefits from whatever they learned during that time frame. The earlier season and the, the late season stuff is, is a bit more, I guess it's, it's harder to put a and B together in certain scenarios. And it can vary a lot more year to year. If you have a food source change, especially in farm country, if you got like crop rotation, that's always a big thing. Um, I don't have to worry about that usually quite as much in the areas that I'm hunting because a lot of times they'll, they're feeding on clear cut um, or they're moving like two miles away and going to ag. So it's like one of those two scenarios, like either number one, like there's just not that many deer there early season or they're there and they're just feeding all over the place. And it's, it's very hard to, to pinpoint anyway. Um, that said, if I'm scouting an area knowing that I want to hunt it during early season, I'll usually try and find the areas of that place that have more discrete cover and food opportunities. You know, so you talk, you gave that example of like a, a wetland area before. Well, if I'm looking at a wetland area and there's a whole lot of just mixed diversity throughout and you find deer beds all over the place and maybe there's swamp oaks everywhere but like none that are really like super different than all the rest. That's going to be an area that's harder to figure out from an early season perspective. You take that and you look at a different type of, you know, wetland area where it's like mostly wiregrass, marsh or cattails, but then you got these Oak islands and maybe you got like shrubby islands near those Oak islands, or you got dogwood surrounding those islands. And each of those islands is like five foot higher in elevation gain. You got white Oaks growing on some of them. Okay, when they have a really defined early season food source in that instance, a lot of times those deer are still going to browse uh, wherever they're bedding, but then they're going to move up onto those islands. If they haven't been pressured, they could do that during daylight. So those are types of areas where you can go in and scout based on what type of food is likely going to be in this very defined area during early season. You go in there in January and you find a big, you know, three foot diameter white oak. Okay, well, that thing, I can just spot check that early season it's either going to have a lot of acorns or it's not but if it's got a lot of acorns it's going to be a dynamite spot because the deer are going to come here um, to eat these and so that's kind of how i would tackle it from like an early season perspective and late season is somewhat similar to early season but like you mentioned sometimes those deer are just doing things a little bit differently come late season especially if they've been pressured really hard they might be grouping up they might be you know, moving over to a totally different side of an area that just hasn't received as much gun hunting pressure. So it might be like a pressure-based relocation. It might be a food-based relocation. You know, how severe the winter is can play an impact on that too. But what I've found is that if there's not snow on the ground, it makes late season hunting extremely hard. And I haven't found a whole lot of scouting, like postseason scouting that helps me a ton for that specific type of late season hunting you know it's almost like if i want to set up for late season next year then what i need to be doing is i need to go out there now because there's eight inches of snow on the ground and i need to start walking and following those tracks and, and bumping up some of those deer and figuring out where they're bedding and what they're feeding on right now because they're not feeding on crops right now they're feeding a lot of woody brows and you know if they can dig up some some like existing um like wetland plants 
if they're above the ice. Like that's the kind of stuff that they're feeding on now, but they might be in more of a, a vast area or they might be pocketed, but I got to figure that out. I can figure that out in January, February where there's still snow on the ground and that sign is very recent. And then I'm going to use that information next year. So that's like, we call it postseason, but it's almost like in season to, to be the most relevant. Yeah. So in season with a long range view. Yeah. In, in season scouting really with an eye toward, toward next season. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And, and even that, that kind of goes across the board. Yeah. October hunting. Every time I'm out there, maybe I'm not setting up on that sign today, but I'm keeping that in my memory bank. I'm marketing it so that I can maybe go back and, and check it out postseason, or at least have that bit of knowledge available for the next, next year. Sure. Well, two things that I want to, that I want to go back to that are kind of more rut related sign, but there's something that like you mentioned earlier for the guy that maybe hasn't done a ton of, uh, postseason scouting, it, it's going to be easier for this guy to find. And the, and the two things you brought up scrapes already, but I want to talk for a little bit about rubs too. Um, but before we get to the rubs, let's, let's talk about the scrapes. So, um, I've noticed since moving from Alabama to, um, or since moving from Louisiana and, and the first Alabama, then Louisiana, and now here to Wisconsin, um, I, in hanging trail cameras and all kinds of stuff, I've had a lot less success, I guess you could say, on hunting um, like scrape lines. But I've had a lot of success hunting like small clusters of scrapes where I find a bunch of them in a, in a really small area. Have you noticed anything similar? Whereas like, because, you know, guys go out in the woods and they, they work their way in, let's say, from a, from a big ag field. Well, you find scrapes right on the edge and you just follow them all the way back to back to some bedding. Um, have you noticed any kind of difference between hunting, say, scrape lines as opposed to clusters of scrapes or something just outside of bedding? It's very contextual. Okay. Both could be really good. A lot of times if you find a cluster of scrapes, like you mentioned, especially if you got, you know, four or five scrapes, you can almost see all of them at the same time. You're in, in and around good doe bedding, a lot of thick cover. Like that's going to be a fantastic spot, most likely to set up, you know, come late October. Now, if you have a scrape line, we had to qualify that scrape line. If you got two different doe bedding areas and they're separated kind of by one side by like some kind of water source, right? Let's just say, for example, some kind of edge. Um, and now between those two doe bedding areas, you get still got a lot of good cover. Let's say it's an area that's not very pressured and you got a scrape line going between those two bedding areas. Well, that's almost like your little cluster of scrapes, except they're just spread out between those two different locations. The bucks are still using that pathway to get between those two areas and check those two different doe groups out. But it's going to be a lot more conducive to, to hunting success than if you just find a scrape line in open hardwoods where there's not a lot of cover around. So it's almost like what's around the scrape in terms of context is more important than what the scrape looks like itself. Yeah, that's super important, I feel like to distinguish for, for folks who are doing some postseason scouting. Cause I know for me, man, I used to go out and I'd find some scrapes and I'd be like, Oh, this is it next year, dead deer already. And I'm like calling the taxidermist already. And it was sort of uh, far from the truth. Um, so let's talk a bit about rubs then real quick, because those are going to be uh, some of the most obvious as people get out into the woods this time of year, like they're going to be staring at you from a hundred yards away. So how do you um, 
count and factor in rubs? Are they important to you at all as you're postseason scouting, or do you just sort of not put a whole lot of they stock can, in them? They can be, especially if I'm qualifying. If I'm trying to qualify a new piece of land, if there's a lot of big rubs, then that'll that'll mean more to me than if I walk through the whole place and don't find hardly anything. It seems like, and I don't know why this is, like there's places in, in North Dakota where we go and it's like, there's no rubs anywhere. Like do these deer, deer even rub trees? But then you, you hunt it and you see deer and the, or you have a camera out there and you, you get some pictures and it's like, well, they're definitely here. You know, this other sign doesn't lie. They're, they're definitely using it. But for whatever reason, it seems like in some areas they rub more than others. And it seems like some tree types, like if you got, uh, you know, regrown clear cuts, it seems like those are very common areas, especially when they get a certain size, you get those saplings that are a couple inches in diameter. It seems like those places just get shredded. Whereas maybe if you've got a more mature hardwood area and the deer are bedding on the edge of that, maybe there's not going to be as many rubs, even though maybe the, you know, quantity and size of deer are equivalent. There's a lot of different variables. It seems like for sure. But if I find a lot of big rubs, I mean, that's, that's like a, a good positive influence for sure. Okay. All right. What do you want them to, I mean, do you want them to be, uh, for rubs, let's say, are you looking for rubs that are related to other features, kind of like you would be with scrapes? Are you looking for, you know, rub lines throughout uh, travel zones? Are you looking for clusters of rubs in one place? How are you reading those? Again, uh, this is similar to the scrapes. I feel like the context around the rubs is more important than the rubs themselves. What the rub tells me is that a buck was standing there to rub that tree. And so if I'm trying to pick, let's say a specific tree in a travel corridor, I'm trying to figure out what's going to be the best tree. And I'm thinking, okay, well, here's the trail. Here's where I think deer are going to walk through. But then I see that, that tree, you know, 10 yards back in the cover that has a rub on it. It's like, well, obviously that deer wasn't walking on the trail. He walked back in that cover and left that rub there. So I got, I need to be prepared to be able to set up a, a tree to where if that big buck cruises, you know, through that cover and never gets out of this big open trail, I want to make sure I can have an opportunity at that. Um, you know, I think sometimes it seems like there's rubs all over the place. And if you map them all, maybe you'd start to get kind of trends from them. Um, it seems like some deer rub more aggressively than others. Maybe some age classes of deer rub more than others. And so I, I try not to read too much into them. You might have a deer that comes through and he's just like, a traveler came from some different area and he makes a big excursion during the rut and he lays down some big sign. Well, I find that during the late season that might not necessarily help me a ton. It might, might be kind of misleading information. Um, or you might have that deer that's just laying down rubs right in this core area. So again, it's just a bit of a mix. If I find in season rubs and it's like late September, mid September, like right after season opener, that tells me those deer in there now. Um, and especially if there's food and there's cover around, I, I better be hunting that, that spot or being paying really close attention to it. Cause it's, it's very recent. Um, once those, you, once you get into that October, November timeframe, you know, if you, if you got the leaves are constantly following, you got windy days and, and you're getting fresh leaf litter on the floor almost every day and you find a rub and it's got those fresh shavings on top of the leaves. Well, now you know that was super fresh. So that's like another bit of Intel to tell you, okay, deer in here right now maybe it was a buck just cruising through if it was the rut but maybe another one could do the same thing three hours so i don't put i guess as much stock into rubs as much as i do scrapes um i'm more of a scrape guy but 
I think Rubs can tell you some useful information in, in the right context. Trying to read too much into them. Okay. So, all right. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, access when it comes to to some of this stuff. How how much are you taking future access into account when you are uh, scouting during the postseason? Are you um, are you planning for access from the very beginning, or are you just diving into an area and when you find a good spot, you're just like, well, I got to figure out how to get here. It's a little bit of both. If I find an area where it's like, this is a really good spot, I need to figure out a way to get here, and there's no good way to get there, maybe that just means that I choose my days very carefully, and maybe I hunt there three times that whole year. Whereas if I'm able to find some type of bulletproof access, you know, maybe you got a, a creek that you're able to kayak up, and you're, you're sitting like, you know, in a tree five feet off the edge of that creek, or you're, you're walking up a, a ditch in hill country and you're able to climb a tree right on the edge of that ditch and you're not crossing any deer trails like in your tire access and you got dropping thermals that are kind of pulling your, your scent down. Um, you got a really safe way. Like all these things that would help you have a really clean sit where you can get in and get out. If you can find that, that means you can hunt that spot more often. More often you can hunt that spot, especially in that October through November time frame, the better your odds are that you're going to be able to connect. Because uh, it seems like especially in in some of the areas that I'm hunting with consistent weather in the right time of year, maybe a deer is hitting a scrape two times a week. Maybe hits it three times a week. Maybe hits it twice in a week in daylight and once at, at night. So trying to go in there for one hunt is really rolling the dice and hoping that you connect, you know, the closer you get to the bed, generally the better, but you still could have a lot of good daylight opportunities if you're able to put enough time in. So yeah, I'm absolutely always looking for the cleanest way to get in and out, but also even on top of access, once I'm up in that setup, if it's a ground setup or if it's up in a tree, once I'm up there, what's my wind doing? What's the, you know, is, is it going to swirl? Like, am I going to blow out this group of doe beds? That's a little bit off. Cause I mean, that, that all factors into just the overall amount of pressure you're putting on a particular spot. I'd much prefer every spot I'm able to figure out some type of bulletproof access and setup, but it's not the reality, especially if you're not able to, to saw stuff and drop trees to, you know, make deer move a little bit differently or that sort of thing. So it's, a, it's definitely a bit of a mix. Okay. So tell me a little bit about, um, about running trail cameras. So, um, one thing that I'm, I'm hoping to try next year, I'm going to put a lot of work into scouting some new areas. I've sort of challenged myself personally to pick up one or two new public pieces within a reasonable driving distance of myself uh, every year. And, uh, but I know I won't be able to make it to all of those areas to hunt. But I'm thinking uh, one thing that I can do is get out there, do some scouting, uh, and then hang a, hang a trail camera based on that scouting next year, even if I'm not going to make it back to this spot to hunt it. Are you using trail cameras in this way or are you using them perhaps even after the season going out and setting it up just to see what's, uh, what's in the area of the sign that you're finding? I'm usually not setting them out too much after the season's over. Generally when I'm putting them out is either right before the season or sometimes during the season, especially if I find if I'm out there scouting in, you know, mid October and I find a fresh scrape line that opened up a lot of times I have a camera in my backpack for that particular scenario and I'll, I'll put it, put one there. But I like 
the intel that number one, you can gain a lot of, I guess, information about deer that are in the area at one spot, like a destination spot. And it seems like, you know, especially in areas you can't bait, a lot of times the best places for those cameras are on some of those really good, like primary scrapes, you know, the ones that are in the cover, the ones that have lots of doe bedding around the ones that have those really well-worn, you know, licking branches from years of use. You might get 10 different bucks hitting the same scrape throughout the month of October. Whereas if you have those cameras set up on pinch points, then sometimes those deer aren't using those pinch points. Sometimes they're only using them on certain days. You might only get certain deer that go through them. It's not giving you as big of a bang for your buck from, I guess, just like a usage standpoint. So if I'm only going to put out one camera on a piece of public to just like keep tabs and like figure out like, Oh, was there anything good in this piece of public this year that I can use for next year? I'm absolutely putting that camera on the, the very best scrape that I can find in that area and, and setting it up in such a way that, you know, maybe it's, you're going to get generally better pictures if that camera's on the ground, but from a theft perspective, if you're able to put that thing up a couple of sticks and sort of angle it down, um, that's probably worth, you know, maybe a few missed triggers in my opinion. Yeah. I, I started doing that, I, I guess a year, two years ago, hanging them pretty high and, uh, you know, I, I, I noticed a lot fewer deer pausing and looking at my cameras, first of all, which was welcomed and, uh, haven't had any problem with theft on cameras that are higher. Now this year I went out one day and I forgot, uh, my stick to take it with me. I had my saddle on, but forgot my stick, which was a, a huge waste of time. So I get out there and, uh, two cameras that I hung kind of low this year. And actually they were on, uh, two separate properties and both of those cameras, uh, where well actually the people didn't steal them they just destroyed them <laughs> i should have i should have pulled them during gun season one of them had the sd card stolen and they broke the camera to get into it and get the sd card so they stole the sd card the next camera it looked like they had taken the butt of their gun and just bashed in the front of it they took the battery box out of it and then they stole the sd card on that as well i would have rather them have taken the camera and left me the sd card so that I so that I could at least get the intel, mm-hmm. but anyway, yeah, yeah it, I think it's certainly uh, certainly worth it. So, um, uh, one more question really focused on um, on postseason scouting, and then we can kind of bring this home. So this is this is high level. This is setting a foundation for you for the following year. Uh, but how often are you going into an area and prepping a tree? Let's say for next year, and you're saying, hey no matter what, I'm coming back to, to this, this spot. Like, are you doing any of that? And what, what does a spot have to do or look like, uh, for you to make that kind of commitment to it? It's usually in areas where I have a couple of years of experience to know that it's a good area. And even a lot of times it might be a spot where I set up and I got busted. Like it was the right area. I just wasn't set up in it the right way. And I knew that, okay, if I was in that tree, that would have been the one to be in. So there there could be some learning experiences that kind of go into it there. Sometimes if you have a lot of opportunities for trees to be able to set up in, it's less important. And I can almost just go in there on the day of and be like, oh, you know, I'll just, the wind's doing this a little bit more today than it was yesterday. I'll set up in this tree today. And the flip side of that is maybe you got a place that just, there's not very good setups. Um, you know, I hunted on the ground a fair amount this year. Part of that was because I didn't really have any trees prepped. 
in some of those newer areas that I figured out. And sometimes the ground set up to work out pretty well, but sometimes they can still be pretty challenging for their own reasons. And if you know that like in this particular travel corridor, or this particular scrape, like there's only one tree that really is going to work and you can find that during postseason, but it's not like, like maybe it's an area where you, you're north of 64 or whatever, and you can trim lanes, you know, you can trim branches flush with the trunk that you're climbing. Well, that's definitely the time of year to do it because once it's during the season, you're you're making more of a an intrusion by trying to trim some of those lanes at that time of year. Like you might even figure out too, like, okay, if I go and climb this tree, I thought it was going to be good from the ground, but it's got this really goofy knot in it, or I can't have my platform in this spot and still be able to draw my bow back and stay underneath this limb that's like four inches in diameter. Like there's things you can figure out on the, the negative side of things too, to where if you just gone in there during the season and set up, like, oh man, this isn't going to work. And then you're like stuck, you know, doing some suboptimal ground hunt or something. Okay. So, uh, well that, that's all I've got for uh post-season scouting. My next question is, uh, do you have big plans for Turkey season this year? Spring's right around the corner. I feel like it should be tomorrow, but it's not. Yeah. I'll be doing my normal three States, which would be Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa. First time will be Iowa just cause they, have a tag that's earlier than when I can draw as a non-resident Wisconsin. You know, back when I, when I was a Wisconsin resident, I used to be able to, to get earlier Turkey seasons, but it seems like as a non-resident, like I don't even bother applying at C season anymore. Like D is the earliest I can draw. Um, at least in the zone that I'm drawn for. And so I get that whole bunch of deer scouting in, in, you know, February, March, April, and then, you know, end of April is kind of when that Iowa hunt is. Then I get another weekend of deer scouting in and then I hunt Wisconsin. Um, and then usually like it's very late May before I'll touch, uh, Minnesota. So like between, between like Minnesota, Wisconsin, I usually back bounce back and forth. Um, Minnesota seems like the place we hunt gets really good late. There's not as many people in the woods and you can, you can have a whole lot of land to roam and be able to, to work birds in the timber and in the hills. Um, which is a, a more enjoyable aspect of it. Um, I feel like just being able to be like ultra mobile the day of is kind of a nice contrast to the deer hunting where it's like, okay, I'm setting up this ambush and I'm not moving, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I found Wisconsin's really good late as well. You know, a lot of guys want to get on to uh, smallmouth fishing or something else and they're, they're doing something else by the end of May. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's pretty nice to have the woods to yourself and be able to, not have to worry about calling in another hunter. Yeah. It's, so. it, it's nice too, that you have the extra cover to be able to move around in and, and be able to set up. Um, it seems like there's always like a really hot week where if you can time it just right, it's like, there's not as many people in the woods and sometimes you get to like really, really like Memorial day. And sometimes it just seems like the action just tapers off and they're just not doing what they were doing like the week before. But it's like, you can time it just right to where they're it's on and there's less hunters in the woods and you got that nice green foliage to be able to really get in close when you're maneuvering around in the timber. Um, that's, that's when I really like to, I really enjoy hunting that time of year. Yeah. Well, good deal. Well, good luck to you this, uh, this spring. I hope you, uh, have a great hunt in Iowa. Uh, that's something that I've been looking at doing myself because it's not too terribly far away from me. So, uh, well, Garrett, thanks for coming on. I appreciate your time. Uh, where can folks go to find more from you? You're pretty much all over the place. 
Yeah, so the best place to find most of the content I put out is on YouTube. If you type in DIY Sportsman, you'll be able to find my channel. I also have an Instagram page, DIY underscore Sportsman. And also under the Sports Nation Podcast Network, I have my own podcast as well. So those are kind of the main places to be able to see the content that I'm putting out. Awesome, awesome. Well, Garrett, thanks for your time. I appreciate it, and good luck to you this spring. Thanks, you too.